0: Um, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So, if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles out and find Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin a new series of messages this morning. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture over the next few weeks that are, is probably familiar to most people. Um, but I'm afraid that. Again, this is one of those series where we take a passage that you've probably heard over and over and over and over, but never really done a deep dive into, to really understand exactly the depths of all that it means. And so that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to look at the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes um, is a small portion of a larger discourse that Jesus gives in Matthew's chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And that's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached by anybody in all the world in all time. Amen? Because why? Who preached it? Jesus. I want you to know this as well as we go into this. The whole Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5, 6, 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. It won't take you very long if you were to want to read the entire sermon as it's recorded. But also know that most scholars believe that what's recorded by Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7 is not the entirety of everything that Jesus taught on this particular occasion when he was preaching to the multitude. Actually, most people say that this would have been a portion or a summary of the discourse that Jesus gave over several days to this crowd on the mountainside. So, that makes my sermons not sound so bad, right? (laughs) you're thinking wow Eric you usually go kind of long well Jesus preached for days but I also know I'm not Jesus okay so I can't hold my attention I can't hold your attention like Jesus would but um, so maybe if Jesus were preaching if you were there you might have hung out for several days to listen to what Jesus said but I also have been in church long enough to know that even if Jesus were up here preaching some of y'all would want out of here at 12 o'clock it don't matter what Jesus is saying right you're like, it's time to go, Jesus. I got to go. That, that's what some of I know, some of y'all would do that anyway. Um, but chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew is, is, a, is a summary of everything that he preached on the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Beatitudes, you can think of as sort of the sermon introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is how the first things that he said to set up everything he was going to teach Through all three chapters. Now, we're not gonna do a study through all three chapters of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Maybe one day we will, but that will be that will be a sermon series that will last months and months because that's a a lot that Jesus has to say. But I want us to look specifically at that introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which we call the Beatitudes. Now, you guys that are familiar with taking pictures with an iPhone, what I want you to think about is that through the series, we're gonna be zooming in on each Beatitude. And we're going to be zooming in and trying to get a picture of what that particular beatitude is. But today, what I want to do is switch the camera to 0.5. Okay? And some of y'all know what I'm talking about. We're going to go to 0.5 on our, on our camera, and we're going to zoom way back, and we're going to get a picture of the whole Sermon on the Mount and all of the beatitudes and kind of what context Jesus is saying these things so that we can really get... A grasp on what we're going to study in the future. So Matthew chapter 5, if you'll find it with me, we'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 10 this morning. Matthew writes in this gospel and he says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. For they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So to get a picture of of what all of these mean as we go through, I want us to zoom out and get a bigger picture. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 4 in Matthew's gospel. So if you're following along in your Bible, just flip over back to the beginning of chapter 4. We'll see. Now remember... Matthew is a long gospel. So chapter 4 is at the very beginning. We're we're at the very beginning of of Jesus' ministry. And if you look in chapter 4, we see the beginning of chapter 4 is the temptation. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. And we know that that was like the beginning mark. As soon as he came out of the wilderness is when he began his public ministry. And Matthew tells us in chapter 4... Um, he, he, it, there's the temptation And then as he comes out You see right after that the calling of the apostles The disciples And you see specifically where he calls Peter and Andrew In Matthew's gospel So he, 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 he endures the temptation in the desert He comes back He's called his disciples And so then he begins his public ministry And Matthew in verse 23 of chapter 4 Tells us exactly what Jesus ministry was composed of and he and there's this threefold aspect of his ministry if you look at verse 23 in chapter 4 it says now Jesus began to go all over Galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people so if we look at verse 23 we can see three specific things that Matthew says were a part of Jesus' public ministry. And I want to tell you the difference between those and why those three are important and how that's going to apply later. So the threefold ministry of Jesus early in Matthew's gospel is this. Number one, it says he went about teaching. And he did this in the synagogue. Now the synagogue was the, the place of public worship for the Jews. It was the place that they came to, uh, to learn to be educated on the Scriptures. It was where they came. It was also a center of fellowship and community in the synagogue. There were even legal things, like legal activities that went on in the synagogue. So you can think of the synagogue as like a a, a center of culture for them. And so this is where Jesus would go, and he would teach the Scriptures. And you say, well, I see preaching and teaching up there. What's the difference? When it talks about teaching, that word that Matthew uses, that Greek term... Describes what Jesus would do similarly to like what a Sunday school teacher or Bible study leader would do. Or even a pastor. To sit down and he would sit down with the Old Testament. And he would begin to teach verse by verse, word by word, go through the scriptures. And begin to expository teach the meaning of what the scriptures meant. Um, Verse by verse, explaining the meaning of the scriptures. And we know what that's like, and we've been a part of groups and classes and even Sunday mornings where that's kind of what we're doing this morning. There's a a teaching element involved. But then also it says that Jesus didn't just teach, but he preached. And you say, well, what's the difference? Um, The difference in the words that Matthew uses, the word preach that he uses literally means to herald or to cry out. Okay, so some of you that grew up that have grown up in church a long time you'll know what i mean when i say there's a difference between a teacher and a preacher okay somebody else shaking your head is like yep yep and and i know i know who i am i know who god made me to be and how he wired me and lots of times people will say i feel like when you're preaching on sunday mornings you're more of a teacher kind of preacher and and i am and god made me that way and i'm good with it but Every once in a while, I might kick over to preaching sometimes, right? And y'all know the difference, right? There's There's a difference between let's explain the scriptures, talk about what it means, and then just to shout out and herald and proclaim the good news of the gospel. So there's a difference between those. And Jesus did both. He not only sat down and and played the teacher role for people as students of Scripture, he also spent a lot of his time publicly proclaiming to people. It says, what what did he proclaim? The good news of the gospel. He was saying that, that everything that God has promised is coming true. Everything that God has set up through all of the Old Testament is coming true right now. The kingdom that you've been waiting for is here, and it's me. I'm the embodiment of the kingdom. I am the one that, that the prophets talked about is coming, and I'm here, and I'm bringing the kingdom of God. And the good news is that there's reconciliation between man and God, and I'm the one who's come to bring that. So that's good news. That's preaching the gospel. And so he spent his time not only teaching the scriptures, but proclaiming and preaching the good news of the gospel, that God's perfect kingdom had come, and he was the king of that kingdom. Amen? Amen. All right. So he was preaching and teaching, and, and he did both of these things like no other person in history would have ever been able to do it. Obviously, why? Can you imagine being in a Bible study with Jesus and hearing Jesus explain to you what the Scriptures meant because it's His Word? He wrote it. He was the author of it. So, so of course, when you read in the Gospels, the times that He would teach in the synagogue and the scribes and the Pharisees and all the people, it said that they marveled at what He said. And they, were like, and they said to each other, no one's ever spoken the way this man speaks. It's for good reason, because it's his word. He was teaching it, and he was proclaiming the good news, not just of a kingdom to come. That's what John the Baptist did. When you think about John the Baptist as the forerunner to Jesus, the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist was a preacher. Okay, John the Baptist was not a teacher. He was a preacher, right? Like preacher with a, maybe with an A on the end. No, he was... That's who John the Baptist was. And he was preaching the kingdom that was coming, that there's one coming soon. And Jesus preached the same way, but instead of preaching about a kingdom that was coming, Jesus was telling them about a kingdom that had come, that was here, and he was in their midst. So he preached with power and authority, and he taught the scriptures with power and authority because they belonged to him. But then there was a third aspect to his ministry, Matthew says. And it was his healing ministry. Now you say, why would, why would his healing ministry be so important? And why would Matthew make mention of it along with his teaching and preaching? Because the healing ministry of Jesus was the divine supernatural verification of all that he was teaching and all that he was preaching. His healing, because there were lots of people teaching the scriptures, Right? In, in his day, there are lots of people who teach the scriptures now. There were lots of preachers preaching different things that weren't the true gospel just like there are today. So Jesus' healing ministry, one of the functions or reasons that he publicly healed so many people is because it was proof that he was exactly who he said he was. And because he did things that no one else could do. And he healed people in ways that no one else could Matthew says that he went he went around healing every kind of sickness and disease, right? That's what you read in verse 23. Every kind. So Jesus wasn't a one-trick pony. When it came to his healing ministry, he wasn't the guy who would who would ride into town with his wagon with this magic cure-all elixir and would stand on the corner. And you know, remember the old school, like back in the early Americas, so they they'd, they'd have their elixir in a jar, and it was this cure-all. If you drink this magic stuff, it'll it'll heal all of it, all that ails you. And people giving out money for it, and, and those guys were crooks, right? <laughs> Jesus wasn't, he healed every, any sickness, any kind of illness, all kinds of things, demon possession, um, leprosy, people who were lame, people who were blind, people who couldn't, all of these things. He could heal all of them instantly and completely. Jesus' healings weren't temporary. He didn't trick somebody into an emotional response that triggered some kind of physical. Um, anomaly that made them temporarily feel better and then later on whatever illness they had just kind of came back when jesus healed someone he healed them completely once and for all perfect healing and no one else could do that but it was verification it was it was his way and god's way of revealing to all the people who saw and heard the teaching and the preaching and the healing of Jesus, he is exactly who he says he is. He's the Messiah. And there's no other. There's no other. So Matthew tells us this, is, this encompasses the early ministry of Jesus. This is what he was doing. Now before we study the Beatitudes, we need to understand too, Jesus kind of comes on the scene doing these things. But then what was the scene that Jesus was coming into when it comes to the religious ideas of the people? That's what I want us to talk about now. He was coming into not a non-religious society. He was coming to the Jews. He was coming to reveal the kingdom to the Jews. And the Jews were the most religious people there were. were. They were practicing. They were pursuing God. They were trying to get close to God in relationship with him. They were trying to please him. But they had all of these different religious systems within Judaism. And, and they all had different ideas about how what are we to do to attain what we're trying to look for in a relationship with God. And so I want to tell you about a few of those. The Pharisees, you've heard of the Pharisees. You've heard of the Sadducees before. There's also a group called the Essenes. We'll talk about who they are. That's another. And then there were the Zealots. These were four, now they're all Jews, they're all practicing the same Jewish faith, but they've got all these different ideas about how the best way to go about it is. And I think that what's represented in those four back in the first century, we can still look at our society today and we can still even look inside the visible church and see all four of these present even today. The Pharisees, let's talk about them first. They were the legalists. The Pharisees were the ones who believed in strict adherence to the Old Testament law. And not just to the Old Testament law, but you see they had created traditions. And things not that God said, but traditions and rules that man had created to say this is how you obey what God says. And so they believed in strict adherence not only to the law, but also to the traditions that they had created in their effort to try to be obedient to the law. Does that make sense? So they were the legalists. They would be the people who um, thought that everything had to be that this certain way all the time. And if it wasn't this way, then, then you, were, you were just wrong. Like you, you might remember a time in culture if you if you've seen like the movie Jesus Revolution. Like there was a time when there were Christians, and there still are, who wouldn't let somebody in their church because they had long hair. Right? That's an example of a legalist, somebody who has a legalistic idea that you you have to dress this way, you have to you have to cut your hair this way, you have to act this way, you have to follow these certain rules. That, that was the Pharisees. They were the legalists. Sadducees were a little bit different. They were what we would consider the religious uh, liberals of the day. They weren't, um, they weren't so set on the rules and the traditions. They were more about the philosophy of the faith. They were the, they were the philosophers. So if they had to bend the law, if they had to change things and not quite follow the traditions and the law, that was okay with them. Because they were all about finding God through philosophical understanding. And we see that today too, don't we? That what the law, what God says doesn't matter. But the idea of God. And everybody's got different ideas of God. And human philosophy trying to figure out who God is and seek after him. The Sadducees kind of represented that philosophical part of Judaism. The Essenes... We don't hear as much about or talk about so much. And and part of the reason is because they were the separatists. And I say that to mean they were the ones who, who thought that the best way to follow God is just to isolate yourself from the rest of society. They were the ones who would who would just cut themselves off and, and go live in isolation. They would sometimes go outside of cities and outside of society and they would live alone by themselves, real real similar to like the monastic movement in early Christianity, like like what monks would do. Like these were the Essings. They they felt like separating from society as much as possible, living out in the wilderness, that sort of thing. That's that's how they pursued God. And then there's the zealots. Now the zealots were—they um, were rough. The zealots were your political activists. The zealots were the—I'll the, uh, I'll use the term nationalists. Okay, they were the ones who were who were so wrapped up in the politics of, of Israel versus versus Rome. They were the ones like carrying weapons around with them all the time, always looking for a chance to try to overthrow Rome. They were looking for a revolt. They were looking for a revolution. And they thought the way we the way the kingdom of God is going to come is when we rise up in violence against Rome and we and we literally start a revolution and take them over. So the zealots were willing to do whatever it took. They were willing to kill people, murder people in in, in political. Um, in political positions to get what they wanted they would probably be comparable to what we would call christian nationalists now people who are just all about politics 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 the kingdom of God's going to come when we take back our country through politics that's that's who they were so we can look at those four we can see that those ideas and those approaches to following God are still present today, aren't they? We can still see those, even even in our churches and different personalities of people. So here's Jesus teaching the truth of the Scriptures, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God has come, and he's verifying what he's saying through miraculous healings that nobody else could do. Jesus is coming on the scene and he's doing these things in the midst of this religious culture. This culture that's pursuing God in all of these different directions. And Jesus is coming in the middle of all that basically to say, all of you guys have it wrong. You're pursuing the, the same God. And you're getting little pieces of the truth. But you're taking these pieces that you want and you're running with it and and you're pursuing a path that you think leads to God but really doesn't. They all represented a piece of the kingdom that Jesus had come to bring but, but they failed to embrace the whole kingdom. Jesus comes to say, I represent the true kingdom of God. And everything that he taught and everything he preached was to bring them to that. And so this is his early ministry. He's began that ministry. He's called his disciples. And then when we get to Matthew chapter 5, we find this occasion where Jesus is going to to spend days basically unveiling to everyone who would hear the disciples that he's called and to the crowds that are there saying, this i'm going to outline the kingdom this is almost like some people call this this like the magna carta of of jesus ministry it was it was i'm going to lay out every principle like if you want a picture of what the kingdom of god looks like what i've come to bring this is it and this is what matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 is it's jesus explaining the kingdom that he's come to bring And so in chapter 5, if we look look back at verses 1 and 2, it kind of tells us the setting of what he's going to say. Verse 1 says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. So because of his teaching and his preaching, and especially because of his healing, Jesus was drawing mega crowds. Thousands and thousands of people were coming to see him. Some people were just coming to see the show. Some people were coming because they were genuinely interested in hearing. And there were a few that he had particularly called. Ones like Andrew and Peter and James and John. He had called his disciples. And so we see both of those crowds in verse 1. So it says that Jesus recognized the crowd. So he wasn't ignoring the crowd. It says when he saw the crowd... He went up on the mountain and he sat down. Now that's significant because in that culture, when a, a teacher or a rabbi sat down, that was a sign that he was about to teach something important. Rabbis taught their students sitting down, not standing up. Like that was a thing. And so when he goes up on the mountain and he sits down, that was a sign to his students or his disciples. Hey, we're about to go into a time of learning. I've got something to teach you. And so he sits down and it says his disciples came to him because they saw. Oh, he's sitting down, guys. He's about to say something important. So they gather up around him. But he, puts himself, he positions himself with them on this mountain because there's this huge crowd that's following after him. And you say, well, who is Jesus talking to when he says these things that we're going to study? Well, primarily, he's teaching his students. He's teaching his disciples. He sits down, and they come and gather close to him. But it says he saw the crowds, which means that he was fully aware that there were thousands of people around, and not only was he going to speak what he was going to speak to his students, but he wanted to do it in a way and in a place that everyone else could hear. That's almost kind of like what we do at church. Like when, I, when, I, when, when God lays scripture on my heart and I prepare and I come on Sunday morning, I'm pr- my primary audience is you guys. But yet we have a live stream, right? And we also open up our services to anybody who wants to come. And so when I prepare, I'm preparing to teach you as the church, as Jesus followers, but also being aware that there's a crowd, that there's a crowd of people who are listening. We may not see them all. There may be folks that come into our services that are part of that crowd. They're just coming to check it out, see what's going on. There are people watching us online. They're part of the crowd. So Jesus is aware of all of these things. And what's so cool is he, he goes up on the side of the mountain to, to teach this. Um, there were no sound systems. <laughs> he didn't have a mega church to go into. Uh, he didn't have microphones and PA systems and sound guys to run the equipment so that they could amplify and everybody could hear. But he puts himself up on the side of the mountain so that the crowd would be below him in the acoustics of that place. Jesus could teach. He could teach his disciples, but his voice would amplify off the side of that mountain and go down into the crowd. And so he was strategic. He, he intentionally positioned himself so that he could be heard by as many people as possible. And so he begins the sermon by making these eight statements. And we call these the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude literally means, it comes from a root word that means blessing. And that makes sense. that The Beatitudes are blessings because they all start with this word, Blessed. Blessed are these, and blessed are those. And, and he begins to use this this word that Matthew says that Jesus used for blessed is a Greek word. I'm going to tell you what it is if, for the nerds who like that. It's, it's the Greek word makarios, makarios, and it's spelled M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S, makarios. And you say, well, what does that mean? Literally translated, that word means happy. You say, Oh, that's where you got the title for the sermon series. Yeah, that's why we're calling it happy, because that word, literally translated, means it means happy, fortunate, or blissful. So Jesus is describing people who are happy, fortunate, and blissful. But we need to understand that for us in the 21st century, Jesus used the word happy or blessed very different than we use it. Because ice cream makes me happy. After church, when this is over, some of y'all are watching your watch because you're like, I want ice cream. I do too, I promise. Nobody wants ice cream in the room more than me. Ice cream makes me happy. That's not the kind of happy Jesus is talking about when he says Blessed. And so I want to give you a picture or or a definition of Jesus. He says, happy are these people, fortunate are these people, blissful are these people. And here's a definition that you can write down. And keep this in mind through this entire series as we walk through it. The blessedness of the Beatitudes is a supreme and satisfying gladness found in a life that is rested in and right with God. And that may take you a minute to write down if you're a note taker. But we're not talking about the happiness that comes from ice cream or the happiness that comes from circumstances or the happiness that comes from money or the happiness that comes from activities that we do. Those are all exterior things. When Jesus said blessed are these, or happy are these, he's talking about this kind of happiness. He's talking about a supreme and satisfying gladness. Like, do you know what that feels like? Do you, can you grasp what he's saying there? It's the kind of gladness and satisfaction that comes from resting in a relationship with God. In knowing that you are in Christ. And you are right with God because of what God has done and because of what Jesus has done. That's what blessed are means when Jesus says it. I remember an old gospel song. I don't remember how old it was or exactly who wrote it. But I remember the Gaither Vocal Band used to just kill it. They used to knock it out of the park. But it was called Satisfied. That was the title of the song. And it said, what what was the lyrics to that song? Some of y'all remember, it says, I'm satisfied with Jesus. I think that old gospel song captures what the Beatitudes are about. Jesus says, satisfied, blessed, fulfilled are the ones who have this present in them. These characteristics. And he's talking about things that are not just... That are not just actions, but they're principles that are present in, in the believer, but also coming out of the life of a believer. And what would have been so strange is that when we read this list of things that Jesus says, blessed or happy or satisfied are the ones who are this, it's the exact opposite of what the religious leaders of, of, of the Jews were saying. It's the opposite of what the, the the unsaved world was pursuing in happiness. I mean, if you look back in your Bible and you go back to the go back to the text, I'm gonna scroll back here. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the ones who are humble, the ones who hunger and thirst for what's right, the ones who are merciful, the ones who are pure in heart, the peacemakers. And the ones who are persecuted, that is not the definition of happiness that the world has. The world tells you if you're that kind of person, you're going to get walked all over and your life will be miserable. But Jesus said the exact opposite. It's like an upside down way of viewing the world. And when you study the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's full of that. Jesus constantly says through the sermon, this is what you've heard all your life. This is what you've been taught by the religious leaders. But what I'm telling you is this. There's a greater understanding. There's an upside-down view of the world that my kingdom has come to bring. And until you can embrace that and understand that through a relationship with me, then the happiness that you're pursuing isn't going to lead to true, supreme, satisfying happiness. It's going to lead to a temporary happiness that will come and go as life changes and as circumstances change. The world would say, happy are the rich. The world would say, happy are the noble, the successful, the macho, the glamorous. Happy are the aggressive, assertive people happy are the famous people, right? Isn't that what we hear? Isn't that what we're told constantly? This is what happiness is. Jesus flies in the face of that in the Beatitudes. That's exactly not where true happiness comes from. The other thing that I want you to notice when we look at, at the religious side of it, the world is pursuing all of these things and we know, okay, that's, Jesus says, that's sure not what it is, but also the religious system of the Jews. If you go back again and look at the list overall, look at the, the results of these characteristics and what Jesus says is coming to the ones who, who understand and, and exhibit these things. The kingdom of heaven is theirs in verse 3. They will be comforted, verse 4. They will inherit the earth, verse 5. Um, they will... They will be filled with righteousness, verse 6. They will be shown mercy, verse 7. They will see God, verse 8. They will be called sons of God, verse 9. And the kingdom of heaven will be theirs, in verse 10. Do you realize that's everything that the Jews wanted? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essings, and the Zealots, all with their different philosophies, that is what they all wanted. They wanted the kingdom of heaven to be theirs. They wanted to be comforted. They wanted to inherit the earth. They wanted to be given mercy by God. They wanted to see God. They wanted the kingdom of heaven to be theirs. But they were going about it all the wrong way. And Jesus says, if this, this is the result and this is the reward that comes with this kind of satisfaction... And this kind of satisfaction only exists in the hearts of those who embrace the kingdom that I've come to bring. So folks, we know that we live in a world full of people who want to be happy, right? You want to be happy. I want to be happy. Every person that's ever been created by God, which is every person ever... Desires this kind of happiness. They may not know it. They may not realize who it's found in, but this is what they are pursuing, whether they know it or not, because they were created by a God who created them for the longing and with the longing and desire for that kind of rest, that kind of supreme satisfaction. That can only be found in Him. And the ones who don't know where to find it, they will find it and they will look for it anywhere they can get it. And they'll be fooled into thinking that the temporary happiness that comes from all these other pursuits is real. And Jesus' whole point of the, of the Sermon on the Mount is to say the kingdom that you think you're pursuing isn't going to lead to the real kingdom of God. So I've come to show you what the real kingdom of God looks like and what the hearts of the ones who are truly a part of that kingdom, what their hearts will look like and what's going to come out of their life because of what's in their heart. The religious leaders in the world, they were looking for external things to bring them into this satisfaction, but none of that stuff is going to satisfy Jesus says, satisfaction is found in me, in my kingdom. And once you discover that in your heart, then these things are going to come out. It's a satisfaction that starts here and then goes out into the world. It's not a satisfaction that is found in the world that's brought into the inside. Does that make sense? So if I could say all of this as a a setup for for what we're going to be studying in the next few weeks... Is to say this last thing. Every person who has ever lived is looking for it, but there's only one person who is the path to it. Jesus is the only one who satisfies the soul. He's the only one. You can sum up. See, say, Eric, what is all of that? What's what am I supposed to walk out of here with? Jesus is the only one that will satisfy the soul. Your soul is longing. something that only jesus brings and so the question that i have for you this morning before we start looking at what jesus says the heart of the kingdom looks like and and the heart of the ones who are a part of the kingdom like what what comes out of their life before we start talking about that specifically i just want you to consider are you satisfied in jesus Have you been satisfied the way Jesus says he's come to satisfy or have you been relying on your religiousness to satisfy your soul? Have you been relying on your your money to satisfy your soul? Have you been relying on relationships and other people to satisfy your soul? Have you been relying on, on materialism to satisfy your soul? Have you been relying on the religious you know, the, the fact that how good you are and following the rules and going to church and, and being all these things, like none of that stuff will ever satisfy your soul. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He is the path and he's the only path. The way, the truth, the life and no one comes to it except by him. So I pray that you'll come to understand all of these principles deeper? If you have been satisfied, if your answer to that question is yes, I know what the satisfaction of a relationship with Jesus is like, then I hope that as we walk through this, you're going to come to a deeper understanding of what God has put in you. Because all of these characteristics are not just things that we're supposed to try to work out on our own. They're present in us. It's very similar to the fruit of the Spirit type thing. When we studied that, They're all unified. They all come together. All of these Beatitudes are possible and are present in the life of a person who's satisfied in a relationship with Jesus. And he says, blessed are, happy are, satisfied are these people who exhibit this and this is the result. So I hope that if you have been satisfied in Jesus or if you are right now, that you'll come to understand that deeper. But this morning, if you're not, if you know and you're realizing now, man, I am like all of those Jewish religious leaders. I've been pursuing all these other different ways of trying to get to God. And what Jesus is saying to you this morning is I'm the only way. I'm the only one that will ever satisfy your soul. Stop chasing everything else. Stop chasing religion. Stop chasing philosophy. Stop chasing legalism. Stop chasing isolation and separation. And and sure, stop chasing politics. It's just me.